Hi, I'm Pete Price, and this week, we're gonna play an interview I did a while ago with Lucy Meacock. The reason I wanted to play it again was I wanted to welcome her back. She's been missing off television. She put a post up and it just said a massive thank you to the kind, hardworking, dedicated people of the NHS and the Liverpool Women's Hospital for putting me back together again and helping me on a long road to recovery. Lucy, we love you. We've always had you in our home at tea time. Welcome back. Here's an interview on my podcast that I did with Lucy Meacock a while ago. Welcome home, Lucy. And by the way, don't forget, subscribe. It's free of charge. Here's my podcast. Peter Lloyd Price, born on the 25th of January, 1946. Not in Liverpool, but in Wales. Indeed, indeed. Because um, I was adopted. So my birth mother um, was in the RAF and she was one of these people that apparently they did this in these days where you have the baby, nobody knows you have the baby and then you give the baby away. So there was a place in Wrexham where unknown, unmarried mothers just went, had the babies and then put the babies up for adoption and then you went back to the forces and nobody realised that uh, you'd had a baby. So that was her and her name was um, Anne Worry. Worry. She's a very unusual name. It's a Scottish name. And she'd call me Raymond Worry. So my real name is Raymond Worry, not Peter Lloyd Price. So that was my first name. Then she gave me away at about three months, I think it was. The best thing she ever did for me was give me away to the most wonderful woman on this earth, who was my mother. That be Hilda May Price became my mother. After mum died, after Hilda died, and I had a really bad time, I went looking for my birth mother for real. And I went because I was looking for love. I was looking to find out if she could replace her, which, of course, is totally wrong. And it was an amazing way to find her because when you think of it, She'd put her address on the birth certificate of where she lived and she married a guy and she still lived in the same house. So she sold her house to him and when they got married. So I got in touch and uh, found a phone number and arranged to meet her so I wouldn't embarrass her and knocked on the door uh, of the house and I'll never forget it. I opened the door and there she was standing there and it was me in a frock. <laughs> Same nose, dark under the eyes, and it was really startling. By the way, never would have wore the frock. <laughs> Not my type of frock at all. Um, and the first words out of her mouth were, don't think you're getting any money, which I then replied, well, I probably can buy or sell you. And the second statement she made was, I'm so sorry to have brought you into the world with your problems. So it turns out she was a listener and knew me, but didn't realise I was her son. She'd forgotten that I was her son. So you felt no bond with No at bond all. at all, especially as, you know, bringing you into a world with your problems because I was gay. Um, what, no bond at all. What impact did that have on you? Please? It was horrendous. It was horrendous. But it made me realise I had the best woman in the world as a mum, Hilda. It was an amazing lady. The only good thing that Grace ever did for me was she introduced me to some of her family and I've got a cousin, if he would have been my cousin, in America who listens to the show every night and will be listening now in New York with his wife and kids. And we become great mates and a sort of auntie who is great. So I didn't like Grace at all. I tried. I tried to like her. And she didn't want anyone to know about me until she realised, uh, in inverted commas, how famous I was. 
which I am locally. And then all of a sudden she turned up one night at a panto and announced at the door I was her son and they made a big fuss and said, your mother's in the audience. And I was mortified. So at the funeral, she died uh, a couple of years ago and I went to the funeral to say goodbye and there were some nice people that I met and uh, they forgot to mention me. So I stood up in the church and went, excuse me, she's got another son, I'm here. Hello, I'm here. So <laughs> that's how I said goodbye to her. And she said to me she was going to leave me all her money to make up for um, what she did. She didn't. I'm not bothered about that. But like money ever could. Yeah. We yeah. need to belong somewhere, don't we? I had the best mum in the world. When mum died, uh, Hilda was an amazing lady, just an ordinary mum like everybody else, but she was magical. And once when she died, I really couldn't believe the pain and I really couldn't believe that I, I could cope. So I went looking for love and, of course, you can't replace it. That sense of belonging that we all need to a family, though. What about your dad? Well, there's another story. There's two dads. There's Grace's uh, husband, or Grace's uh, the father, my father, which I'll tell you about in a second. But my mum, Hilda, he was he was name was Dave Lloyd Price, and uh, he he was a wife batterer. Uh, now I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember her being thrown down the stairs. I remember her going past me, and I can't remember my age. How old were you? Six, seven, that sort of age. Never touched me. A Welshman from Merthyr Tydfil. Uh, never ever touched me, but was a wife batterer and a very cruel man and a lot of intimacy that I found out about later on in life because my mum was quite a, a shy woman, but I made her speak one day. Uh, anyway, she threw him out and I always remember him leaving. In West Kirby, we had a little corner shop, a little Chandler shop, a proper, it was like open all hours. It was one of those fabulous shops and there was a bridge. And when I was a little boy, that bridge looked huge. In fact, you go back now, it's a little bridge. And I was walking up the bridge and my dad was coming up with a small suitcase. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to see your nan in South Wales. And I never saw him again. Uh, never, ever, ever saw him again. And you were um, how old when that happened? I, I would be about 10, I think, uh, when that happened. And then... And um, how was your mum about that? Well, she needed him to get out because he was he was a very cruel man. So Everyone really... loved Dave, uh, Dave Lloyd Price, uh, but they didn't see his drinking. They didn't see his... He was, he was a typical uh, wife-beater. So uh, many lives are like that, aren't they? We know it from the phone-in all the time. I mean, it's horrendous, horrendous. Do you know, leaving me aside for a second, something stuck with me for so long. One woman told me on my phone-in, you know, you know, because you're a broadcaster and you know how this affects you, and she said to me, she don't pet the dog and go out the room because she knows her husband will kick it out of jealousy. And you think, I can't get my head around that. That stayed with me for many years. So I'm anti-violence uh, of any sort anyway, especially domestic violence, because of what he did to my mum. I never saw him again. And then one day, in, I must have been 15, 16, I was at the beach with my mum at West Kirby and a man came up to me, didn't know him, and gave me a, a matchbox, a pilot matchbox, uh, and said, um, you're Peter, give that to your mum didn't know who he was and he went I went over and it was a five pound note that was the only money he ever gave her and I remember watching her rip it up she tore and that was a lot of money and that was the only time I saw him and then I went looking for him after my mum had died and I found him working in a warehouse in Bolton and I went to a social club and I was working that night and he walked in and I went to the bar and I said do you fancy buying me a drink and he went, why would I buy you a drink? I said, because I'm your son. 
So he was boasting and everything. And I went on stage that night and stood on stage and went, ladies and gentlemen, you might have already heard, Dave Lloyd Price is my father. And everybody stood and applauded. And I said, what I didn't tell him was, I'm gay. And they all sat down. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Dave. And then he died seven months later. And he was the first, one of the first men in the world to die of Legionnaire's disease and in Spain. And it made world press, uh, which was, you know, he'd been in the shower, he'd got it through the shower and uh, they wanted £28,000 to fly his body back. Oh, so I don't, it's not my father, I haven't seen him for years. <laughs> Just, But he was the first, one of the first men to die of Legionnaire's disease. So that was one dad. The other dad, which is my favourite story, so Grace had told me all these lies and she went on and on about... And I, I didn't know whether to believe her. But she gave me a photo of the man and it's in my book, P. Price Name Dropper. So she gave me this photo and she said that was my father. And she said he was a Polish-American GI. And in fact, this story involves where you're sitting right now. So put that in your mind. So picture this. So long story short, so she tells me that he was a Polish-American GI. About two years later, I rang her up one night and I said, didn't ring her a lot, but I rang her up and I said, listen, I'm going on Esther Ranson's show tonight. Do not watch it because you'll be offended or upset about what I'm going to do because I'm trying to find my father. And she started to cry and get upset. And I said, what's wrong? She said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to what? I didn't mean to lie to you. What do you mean lie to me? About your father. Pardon? He's not a Polish-American GI. Hang on. I'm speaking to Oprah Winfrey about these shows that they do. I'm, uh, I've got a detective in America. I've got newspapers doing this, and you're telling me it's not my father. Who's my father? I don't know how to tell you. Just tell me who my father is. She told me he was an Italian prisoner of war based at Warrington, at Burton Wood, went over the fence, did the business, and went back and kept in touch with her. So he was, a, to all intents and purposes, an Italian prisoner of war. Long story short, I've got a pal who speaks perfect Italian. He wrote me a letter because I'm mad. And we sent a letter, you're not going to believe it, you couldn't make this up, to the mafia chief who was in Palermo prison. And he got this letter saying, could you help me find my father? Because we believe he's from Sicily. So we didn't hear anything back. Four days after the letter had gone, I got a phone call from an Italian uh, TV company and there was a programme called, and the pronunciation's probably wrong, Shelevista. It was a programme trying to find people of all sorts. And it's a big Italian programme, and I think it's still going. And they find people. It goes out on Friday night, and I think there's 20 million people around the world watch it uh, and looking for people. And they came over to Liverpool and filmed me. Made the most wonderful films. Came to The Grapes, where I sing on a Sunday afternoon. Came in here, came everywhere, did this amazing film. And then... Three weeks later, informed me they'd found my father. Now, how they could find my father, I don't know, because they didn't have any pictures. So how they could... But they had found my father. And they wanted me to do live television on the Friday night, sitting in that seat, to be uh, at one with my father, live on television in Italy. So it was all set up. And I'm laughing because who is he? I've got this photo that she's given me. They haven't told me who this man is. So just before we go live, they said, ladies and gentlemen, we're going live. So they show me a photo of who they found and a photo who my father is. And the differences between 
Donald Trump and uh, Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> Just worlds apart. Worlds apart. So we go live to Italy. And three, two, one, on. We have found your father, interpreter. What do you want to say to your father? And I went, Papa, because I'm going to play the game. Papa, I just want to come to the village and taste our tomatoes and drink our wine and get to know my family. Cut. Ad break. <laughs> to which there's murders on the phone. He's had a heart attack and been rushed to hospital on live Italian television. He's not my father, but he thinks he's my father. So when uh, after this, I got about 30 emails from around the world. Uh, hello, Peter, I'm your father. Hello, Peter, I'm your father. The best one was Henry. I, my name is Henry. I am German. I'm not your father, but I find you very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of my father. That's incredible. I love the way that you laugh about these things, but... But behind all of this, mm. that there are some really tough times oh, there. Yes. And I wonder whether or not that's why you're so good at listening to people when they open up to you about all sorts of things that they go through. Do you think there's something good that's come out of all those experiences? I think you as a journalist, it's the same for you. I think as you get older and you go through this pain that we listen because you listen as well because you're a journalist, you're a fact finder. And But I think, I think I don't think young people can do phone-ins. I think you need life experiences. I think everything that I've gone through, and I think you as a journalist, when you deal with it, because you know I'm a fan of yours and I watch you every night and, and I see looks on your face and you're going, oh, not another one of these stories. Those poor people. You know, you've got to have those life experiences to... To, to laugh at it, but also know that you can be there for them. So, yes, I do listen to people. So you've had to have some pain, really. To, dreadful pain. To understand yeah. other people's pain. Yeah, and I laugh at it, but it is painful. So, um, you obviously made your name locally as a stand-up comedian. I'm sure loads of people know that. And being the host at the famous Shakespeare Club in Liverpool. Take us back to those days. We had a little Chandler shot. I used to work, and my job, you'll love this, my job every day was to put paraffin in the shop because we sold paraffin uh, because it was a real Chandler shop. It used to smell of fire lighters and paraffin and it was a great shop. It was everything. They sold China tea sets and uh, uh, toilet rolls. It was just great. Light bulbs. It, it was fabulous. But they I have to... shops like that anymore. No, not anymore. And I had to bring paraffin in from the backyard into the shop. And it was in five-gallon drums. So we had two thousand-gallon drums outside full of paraffin. And I would carry this through the kitchen, through the um, hall, into the shop, empty them into the 500-gallon drum. Picture that. So 2,000 gallons in two tanks, 500 gallons there. The firelighters and wood were round the paraffin. <laughs> it was totally illegal. There was no health, health and, and safety. safety. These tanks <laughs> had locks that you could snap open. The only time we ever worried about it was bonfire night. We sat up all night. So I'm splashing with the oil. And, of course, if it had gone up, my bedroom was above there. I'd have been the first. I'd have gone up, if you'll pardon the expression, in a puff of smoke. Um... So I knew what hard work was. You were a grafter. I was a grafter, so I got that. So I went to Catering College. wasn't brilliant at school. went to Hoyle Parade School. And it wasn't brilliant, but loved Did cooking. Did you like school? No. 
not particularly, because I was fighting my sexuality and worried about what I was. And But at secondary modern school, I didn't do metalwork. I did cookery. And, and I was one of the first people... Well, I was one of the first people to do cookery, you know, so they allowed a boy. And it was hysterical because going home on the bus, you remember the girls, boys and girls out there? You remember the girls with their box of um, uh, sausage rolls? That was me. Got robbed every day. Every day I'd cooked anything, I'd get robbed on the bus. So what I did was, which I was thrilled about, I used to make casseroles. Go on, rob that then. <laughs> <laughs> Not so easy. Yeah. So I did catering. So I went to Birkenhead Catering College and then... Uh, I went to see Peter Collinge, who is Andrew Collinge's dad, and he's a legend in his own he right. Is. Peter was a legend, yeah. and I got an apprenticeship with him. So I did hairdressing in between college and weekends, and I, I ran them both alongside each other and didn't know which one to do. Passed all my exams, realised, which makes me laugh, realised that um, I couldn't stand the women nagging when you're doing the hair. And now I do it for a living, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and then went into catering. Very sh long story short, worked on the ships, hated it. Worked at the Cafe Royal in London when it was the restaurant. Worked in a couple of tea shops for 40s. Came back, ran the Swan in Wood Street as assistant manager, did the food there. Finished up at the Cabin Club, ran three restaurants there. And that was the day in there that I discovered my life in show business. Because one night... We had the Billy Ellis Trio, big double bass and proper uh, jazz musicians and great fun. And the cabin had no door staff on. It was the place to go. Uh, Mrs. Windsor was on the door. Nobody got past her. She was the owner with Brian Gilbertson and Ian Bell. And I was the chef with the chef's hat and everything. And I said, you need a disco in here. And discos weren't around. Billy Butler was the only guy doing it in Liverpool at the time. And I didn't know what it was but I knew that you danced to records. And when you were a little girl in those days, you did not dance to records. You danced to the live music and then walked out uh, when the records were on. So I said, do a disco. And they said, well, what is it? I said, well, you play records and what were? So we tried it. I had 10 records and one turntable and I was in my chef's outfit. And I was going things like, come on, everybody up, dance, yeah, clap your hands. I didn't know what I was doing, but, but it worked. It, it worked. Now, remember, I was earning £15 a week as a chef, running three restaurants, working every hour God sends. 15 quid a week there. They then had a meeting with me and said, we want you to do this full time. I went home. My mother broke a heart. What is it, son? You put records on. Pardon? You've just been <laughs> at Caton College for how many years? You've been doing hairdressing. Please, son, don't do it. So I went back. And I, they said, how much do you want? Now, I'm getting 15 quid a week for doing all that. I'm thinking, hang on, hang on. Hang on. I can't ask for money for putting records on. Come on, how much do you want? I went, right, 20 quid, and that's it. Well, I was gobsmacked. I went, what? They went, 25, and that's the last offer. So from 15, I jumped to 25. And the first day, I'll never forget going in for me waging. I went, let me waging. Pardon? Let me waging. Because I was embarrassed. But then I realised... Eventually, they were queuing in outside to get in the club. We'd created something, and I realised there was a career. And how much of a buzz did you get after that? 
it was the weirdest thing ever because in those days it was little records. And by the way, I've got the same box of records. I've kept my records. DJs do not give the records away. But you put a seven-inch record on, a little a little record, a little 45, and run to the toilet. And next minute you hear it sticking and everyone's booing you. There was nobody there to... And you did five hours without a break. And it was great. And we started doing parties and throwing uh, custard pies at each other. And it was a wild, wild place. And that's where I learned. Didn't want to go home. I used to love work so much. And that's when I got the taste for working late nights because we didn't get home till four o'clock. My mum used to get very angry at that because I was about 19, 20, you know. So she wasn't happy with me out all night. I didn't want to go home. And the place used to smell of prawn cocktails. I always remember that. And I have the two menus from Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. Christmas Eve uh, was 10 and 6 in old money and New Year's Eve was one guinea and it was the food. And the food in those days, prawn cocktail, steak and chips, Black Forest Gatto. That so you can meal. make a great prawn cocktail, then. Can oh, you? I can make a great prawn cocktail. Are you and, cook? Uh, yeah, still. Yeah, I've gone lazy, but yeah, What's I used to have speciality. Di- then I, people used to laugh at me because I used to use cuts of meat that were cheap, and then now this day and age, fashionable. But I used to use. Uh, belly pork and I used to use breast of lamb and the breast of lamb in particular I used to cook, uh, cook cut it into ribs cook it in honey with parsley onion and garlic then drain it off with the fat grill it and serve it with petit poil de francaise and uh, potatoes bernet which were with uh, almond nibs around the outside so that was one of my but people used to laugh another cheap joint now but it was the tastiest part of, you know, so I was doing that before anyone. As a DJ, I thought I knew everything. And then I got a job on Radio Merseyside. I was the first ever freelancer, uh, which was amazing. And I got five guineas for a show called Never Mind the Price. And they doubled it. It was for half an hour. They doubled it to an hour and called it twice the price, but didn't double the money. Um, when good I was names. there... Really, again? really good names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't bad, were they? And uh, I, I, I learned a little bit about radio then. And then George Silver took over the Shakespeare, which was this beautiful theatre club, which was built in 1880. Um, and Murray Lloyd played there and Lawrence Olivia. It was a wonderful place and sadly burned down now. If it had been here for Capital Culture, it would have been one of the crowning glories. And I got the job there as the compere, went on stage the first night, sang two songs, told three gags, and I was a star Overnight, for three years after that, I was booed, had tables thrown at me and learnt my trade. And I was there for a few years working with everyone from Tony Bennett to Bassey. That's where I learnt my trade. That's where I learned stagecraft. Then I came to Fagan's in Manchester in Oxford Street when that was a big club and I was compere there for two years. And that was amazing, totally different. Then went back to Shakespeare, then went on the road as a stand-up comic doing 70,000 miles a year. So do you prefer being able to see an audience? Yes, without any shadow of a doubt. But I would hate to do what John Bishop's doing now. I'd love the money, but I'd hate to work in an arena. I can't see a comic standing on an arena stage. It's an intimacy. You know, it's the Empire Theatre or it's the Woodcutters Club or it's Kirby Buff's Club or it's uh, Butlins. Even Butlins were a bit big, the big holiday camps. they They were quite hard. Uh, but I love the intimacy with comedy, but yeah, I love a live audience. Is that not scary? 
not scary at all for me. Scary when you haven't done your act for ages. I mean, I used to love working with you. We did those debates. I used to love that. You never quite know what's going to happen. No, and and you uh, you controlled them very well. They were they were great not the way always. we did that. Not always, but then that was good TV. That was good TV, you know. So, uh, but I do. I love a live audience, and having a live audience has helped me on radio. So DJing, comparing, comedy. It's all that, the pain of my mum, the pain of adoption, all that gives you that amazing wealth of knowledge to take over. I mean, if, if the show broke down now and everything went wrong, I'd do my act. OK, so let's talk about uh, Pete's first show on Radio City. Uh, presumably you can remember that, 1979, Downtown. First music, first it's Downtown with Peter Price. Good evening. <laughs> Actually, what I was going to play was Hello, I'm Back, but uh, needless to say, I made my first boob of the night, you see, I made a mistake. I was going to put that, and then everyone would say, is that really Pete Price? And I'd say, yes, it is. And it's the first time ever on City, uh, which is very exciting. I'm doing Downtown now until uh, next Friday, uh, and I've already had a few requests. I'm certainly not going to change the programme at all, so I'm going to play all your music, and we're going to have the uh, Peaceful Hour, which I'm very pleased about, because I like that type of music myself. And through the next few days, I'm going to tell you all about where I've been and what I'm doing, and uh, it's just so nice to be back. Fading into the distance. Oh, what an amazing record. Did you ever see that lady on that uh, show on the other station? And she's quite a big girl, very hefty girl. Incidentally, I've got a bit of a problem tonight. Uh, well, it's my problem, but the, the problem being is with doing this show and trying to get all these requests, like this next one, which is for Lou Reed, I miss Coronation Street. And I don't know what happened, and I'm a bit upset because Billy Walker's back. So if anybody could ring up Burton, tell them I'd be very grateful because I'm not into football. Right, we'll play this request. Radio what I remember most about Radio City was that I was the first one before anyone in the world was doing it. A 20-minute spot on a Saturday morning uh, with my producer, Carmel Nolan, who became my dear friend. And I did 20 minutes on the soaps. There was no magazines. Nobody was doing it. Everyone said, you're mad. Can't talk about the soaps. But it's Which, what people want to talk about. But it, in those days, it wasn't. But even now. We were, well, yeah. it's big business, yeah. and we were the first to do it. And a lady rang up one day called Pat, Pat the Soap Lady, um, and said, I like talking about the soap. And she spoke to me. 26 years later, we still talk every Monday. It's fantastic. Isn't that ridiculous? Just a listener. 26 years later. So we were, we were adventurous. We were the first people to do it. There was no magazines, nothing. Um, and I used to ring Granada up and they were thrilled because, you know, I've never missed an episode of Coronation Street. Wow. From day one. Never missed one episode. I'm not a huge fountain of knowledge about the people, but I know everything about the stories and everything about the characters. And the day Hilda Ogden left was one of the saddest days of my life. Have you got and a favourite moment from Corey? Gene Alexander with the glasses every time with Stan. I'm getting upset now thinking of it. I'm genuinely upsets me because Stan had died and she got his glasses and she opened them. She really gets upset. I love Coronation Street. It's been there forever and it's been part of my life. And people say, you're mad. Not mad. Comes into my home. You know, so it just... And when I met them all years later, wow. I mean, I, I met a million famous people because I'm known as a name dropper. But when I sat next to Gene Alexander... I lost it. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. I 
I just made a total show of myself. She went, calm down. Oh, God, God, I can't calm down. I made a fool of myself. And she got the little ashtray out and started smoking. But you feel you know these people so well. Yes, yes. And I admit it. I admit it. I love it. You know, I mean, I've just finished Panto with um, Sally, um, who was, of course, in Coronation Street for years, Sally Lindsay. And I was still in awe of her. And she said, you know, after all these years that she's been out of it, people still say, oh, Carrie. She was a lovely character. Fabulous, yeah. yeah. A good and, actress, too. Yeah, very much so. Um, so tell me about Pete Price in 1979, then. What were you doing then? Um, I was outrageously dressed, fighting my sexuality, didn't think I was gay, but walking around in um, blue leather hot pants wow. with Mickey Mouse on the front, all done in leather, with yellow braces, and what high heel boots. And were you getting to that? Well, I was on the front page of most newspapers in hot pants, um, and my mum just thought I was eccentric. <laughs> just couldn't believe that. But she didn't have issues with it. But she didn't know I was gay. She didn't understand it. She just thought her son was a little bit over the top. I was before my time, the way I dressed. I mean, I was just spent a fortune on clothes. I mean, I went out once on Valentine's Day with a pair of wellies and a heart and a bow and arrow, nothing else. Just a G-string, pair of wellies. I've got a photo somewhere of it. It's horrendous. <laughs> just, I just, and I wore jewellery. I had a, a ring. And I used to do the ring, the gag about the ring, and it was a 128 carat topaz, bigger than my watch, stood that high, made by a guy in Spain with molten gold over it. It was amazing. And I used to say, do you like the ring? That was my mother-in-law. She said to me, when I die, here's £500, get me a nice stone. I thought, why wait? So that was my gag that I used to do. But I, he told me, the doctor, you don't stop wearing it, you'll have rheumatoid arthritis all your life. So I was outrageous. So... When did you talk to your mum about being gay then? It was a Thursday night. I was working at the cabin club. She was a very naive woman. I came home and she was awake and she was sitting in bed um, and she looked like she died. She was every bit of colour had drained from her face. And she found a letter. It was the most ridiculous letter. She hadn't been rooting. It had fallen out of my bureau. I was stupid enough to keep it. And it was one of those silly letters. Dear Peter, if you marry David, I'll kill myself, John. Something stupid like that. It was a, one of those childish things. And uh, it was a gay letter. And, uh, and she said, what does this mean? I can see her right now as if I'm looking at you. What does this mean? And I, all the colour drained from my face and I said, it means I'm a homosexual because, of course, the word gay didn't exist. And, of course, we were criminals in those days because I was against the law because I was underage. How old were you now? Uh, I would be about 18. Um, and she promptly threw up um, and was taken to hospital with a nervous breakdown. She just completely lost it. Told me to get out of the house, apologised. And, and this is the woman that you love yeah, the most? yeah, yeah. Apologised ten minutes later, saying after saying get out of the house, she said we'll get through this, but just you know, just leave it with me. I've got to get used to this. She never got used to it. She cried herself to sleep for three years, to my knowledge, every night of her life. And the real reason was because we were criminals, uh, because she wanted grandchildren, and because life was cruel, and she wanted me just to be normal, whatever normal was. And it was a different world in those days, a different world. The cabin club had been very good to me. They'd recognised that I was gay and they'd allowed me every so often to have weekends off. 
So I would go to London, and the first time I went to London looking for people of my own kind, it was 12 and 6 for the return ticket, which took me a long time to save up. And I got off the station at Euston, I can see it now, and I put my gabardine coat on my shoulders, got my cigarette holder out and minced down the station. And we drank large gin and tonics, not pints in those days, and went looking for gay people. And were you angry with your mum about her reaction? I wasn't angry. I was waiting for it. I thought she'd disown me. I was scared. Like most people listening to this programme who fight their sexuality, even in this day and age, it is very difficult to come out. Very difficult. Once you're out, you're out. That's it. And it's a big step. And in those days, being a criminal and people were going to prison for having sex, sexual relationships with other men for 10 years, it was a dreadful there was witch hunts by the police it was a dreadful time it was a dreadful time um so i wasn't angry i was hurt and i sent to america for an lp there was a psychologist that helped and i used to put this lp on and he used to do it and he cut the story down we went to the doctors Anything to help her. And my doctor was Dr. Lansley, uh, who sadly is not here now. And I say sadly, I was a bit upset with him in the end. But he said there was a cure. And for the sake of my mother, I said, I'll have the cure. So I went for the cure. I volunteered because of being a criminal, you couldn't do anything else. And I had to go in to the hospital under an assumed name because... Um, uh, you were a criminal. So you couldn't admit that you were in for homosexuality. So they put me in diva, in the mental loony in bin. Chester. Yeah, in the loony bin. And loony bin was what it was called in those days. It wasn't a, a psychiatric ward. There was bars on the window. So for the sake of my mother, and in my heart of heart, I wanted to be cured, but in my heart of heart, I knew I couldn't be cured. So I didn't want to be negative. And this is a long story, once again, made short. And there's a dreadful end to this story, a dreadful end. And this, once again, is in the book. And, and it's been documented on television because I never spoke about it for years. So I went in, a lovely friend of mine took me to the hospital, didn't know what they were going for. Uh, they left me. I went in and for three days I stayed in with psychiatric patients who were... Uh, peeing on my bed, uh, whispering in my ear when I was trying to sleep. I was just put in with a lot of uh, very sad people and very scared. I was I was frightened. I didn't know if I'd ever be seen again. I really genuinely believe that. And then it came to the time of the treatment. And what they did with me was they put me in a room with a uh, a nurse, a male nurse, which is an amazing story afterwards. Something happened with that. So a male nurse... They recorded on a, a, a Grundy TK20 tape recorder. I can remember it now. What you do sexually. And it was brutal. It was all, all the language that we couldn't use on radio, which made you feel offensive and, and vile. So that lasted an hour. They asked me um, what I drank in those days, and I drank Guinness. So they had cases of Guinness. So it was cases of Guinness, the tape playing... And what they call dirty books. It was guys in bathing costumes. It was ridiculous. They weren't dirty books at all. So I had to listen to the tape, drink the Guinness and look at the books while the nurse just sat there and didn't speak. That lasted an hour. Halfway through an hour, they injected me. The injections made me vomit and go to the toilet. But I couldn't go to the toilet. I had to do it in the bed. 
So I def defecated in my own, and lay in my own excrement. So that lasted an hour. So I was sick, and, and uh, that lasted an hour, and another hour, another hour, another hour, and for 72 hours, without any sleep, without any change of clothes, without anything, I had to lie in that filth and vileness and have injections every two hours, I think it was, or every hour. And in the end, there was nothing to vomit up. There was nothing, and I was distraught. And I sent for the doctor, and I, I was, he said, you're, you're overreacting. And I said, I can't believe you've done this to me. He said, right. I said, I volunteered. I want to volunteer out. I want out now. And they said, well, all right. Well, before you go, let's put the electrodes on your penis. So that if you get an erection, you'll be, um, uh, that will send a shock. I said, if you think that any shape or form that I'm going to get sexually excited in anything with anybody right now, I said, what I've just been through, I want out of here. I went. I had an eight hour bath. My mother never forgave me for leaving. I never told her what they did because she would have topped herself. She would not have been happy. So I never told her. The end of the story is there was a gay club in Manchester called the Rockingham. It was a fabulous club. It was one of those ones. You knocked on the door, opened a slide door. You're a gay, pump out and out. So that was that. Went in and you were allowed to dance together. You're allowed to do a waltz at the very end. But uh, Reg, the owner, uh, would come. Could you keep a bit separate in case there's any police in? It was terrible. Anyway, this particular night I was in there. And I saw a man at the bar, and I'm not physically violent in any shape or form. I wanted to kill him, and I tried to kill him. I jumped on him, the doorman got me off. The psychiatrist was in there. He was gay. The man that put me through that torture was gay himself. So whether he was getting his rocks off watching me go through that, I came out of that and said, enough is enough, I am who I am. And I said to my mum, I can move out or I can stay here. If I have somebody back at night, I will never rub your nose in it. What I'll do is I'll put a little note outside the door because I had my own little rooms and it'll say maybe tea for two in the morning with some toast. She knew somebody was there. When she was in the shop, if somebody stayed, I would sneak them out. And that's how we finished up. And she still loved you? She still loved me. Yeah. So, again, maybe that's why you... <coughs> Excuse me. Again, maybe a reason that you recognise how important it is for people to talk through things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I say I I I get angry at one thing. I genuinely believe, and I get told off for this, but I genuinely believe if there are any gay footballers out there, do not come out. Do not put yourself through that torture. The abuse they get. As a footballer, anyway, is bad enough. I would never recommend a footballer to come out. It's ridiculous because in rugby, it doesn't happen. They've got gay rugby players and they know, but it doesn't happen. But in football, it's make no mistake, homophobia is alive and well in this country. Make no mistake. Pete, let's move on now to, um, you know, I know you've got an amazing lineup of, uh, of friends um, that we've all heard of. Uh, I wonder who had the biggest influence on you? 
Oh, that's a big question. I mean, it's got to be Silla Black as one, but that's a big question. Because I've worked with so many show business people over the years, and because you know yourself, in, in, we're in the same industry, and some you click with straight away, some you don't, and some you love and some you become friends with. But we have a weird relationship in this business because I did, I think it was three years with the Crankies, never saw them for seven years, Spoke occasionally on the phone, but then you pick up as if you've never been away from it. It's the weirdest thing. But I think Scylla was amazing in my life. I've done 30 years of pantos. This year has just gone uh, with Sally Lindsay. It's been wonderful. But the one, 2008, with Scylla was the best, without any shadow of a doubt. Why do you think that you and Scylla got on as well as you did? Known her for years. Met her in the cloakroom when I used to go to the cavern. Um, and put my coat in and uh, don't know why I liked her so much but I got to know her then went to the YMCA in Hoylake one night and there was a group on called uh, The Big Three and who gets up? Scylla Black singing Fever why it stayed with me I don't know but she went wow blew the place apart went and saw her at the cloakroom and said I didn't know you sang oh yeah that's what I'm going to do so I knew her but we weren't friends. So you didn't realise that you were going to become such close friends? Never in a million years. And she used to work in the cloakroom with Billy Butler. And then he did a bit of DJing. So I got to know her. Then over the years, I mean, she became a huge star. And then I was in the business. I'd interviewed her a couple of times. And we started to click. But when Bobby was alive, you never got near her. I mean, Bobby was very protective of her. And he would have loved me, but because I didn't know about Bobby, sadly, very well. And then when Bobby died, I wrote her, I wrote a beautiful letter which really touched her. And then... Of course, she had such a big gap in her life, though, oh, didn't she? She, she never she got over it. She needed someone to love and... Never got over it. As I said a, a million times when, when, when she died, at least she'll be with Bobby. If there is a place, she'll be with Bobby. Um, then we did the but panto. But she needed her friends Yes. Then. And, and, of course, Paul O'Grady was there for her and Biggins was there for her and Dale Winter was there for her. Everyone was there for her. But when we did the Panther in 2008, that's when we cemented. And we'd known each other, known each, but we just clicked. And the one night we took her out and she used to say, I'll come for a quick drink. A quick drink, yeah. Quarter to eight in the morning, we put her in the taxi wow. with her designer coat on inside out. She got packed. <laughs> From that day onwards, we became pals for life. <laughs> oh, we all need friends like that. Mm. Um, and Liverpool's going to have the Scylla statue. Tell me about your involvement in that, Pete. Uh, it's interesting because we really can't talk about it as yet, but we know we've got a place where we want it. Joe Anderson, the mayor, has been incredibly helpful. The boys want to gift this to Liverpool. They're gifting the, the statue. Uh, I've been involved with finding the artist. I've been involved with getting the place. Uh, as I say, the boys are paying for it and then gifting it. Um, and it's it's looking very, very good, but we're not telling anyone where. Uh, and we're not telling anyone who the statue is being built by, but it's going to be something rather special. How important is that, do you think, to Liverpool and to you personally? Well, to me, it's very important because um, she was an icon. And people, people, and sadly, until she died, people didn't realise how famous she was. You know, the, there was a world outpouring in Australia and uh, everywhere. Um, and I think she needs her place along with John Lennon and this amazing um, Beetle Four down at the docks. And yeah, we need Scylla. And there's not many uh, women statues. There's one of Bessie Braddock in uh, Lime Street. There's not a Scylla. So it's going to be great. On your show over the years, you've had some right wind-ups, haven't you? No, have I? <laughs> 
<laughs> where do we start? The pranks and cranks. Oh, my word, where do we start with that? Do you like that? Do you love that? Um, I love it and I don't love it. I, I liked it a little bit. Um, and I would like... <laughs> It's hey, it's made me who I am because uh, we only had one night a week. We used to do just Sundays before we went five nights a week, and that's when it started. And it got this legs of its own. But there is a serious side. We take you for four hours every night on a journey, and it goes all over the place. Nobody knows what's going to happen on the show, which is what I love about the show. But the pranks and cranks. I mean, the latest campaign, which is still going on now, that I'm a shape shifting lizard, and people will walk in town and go, "You lizard? Why? I don't know." But it's taken their imagination uh we had taste like um, chicken we've had um uh, kebabs <laughs> students started we have a huge student listenership and people come up to me years later and say you don't know me but you got us through my you got me through my degree really yeah we used to listen to your show and it got us through bad times it is a strange world isn't it that world of late night radio listeners yeah because so many people are doing so many different things. They might be going through difficult patches, mm. they might be going through exams, and you are their best friend yeah. at that point. You, there's things stay in your mind. I've got so many stories about radio, but one thing that jumps to my mind straight away, well, there was a lady who sadly has passed away. She never got over her husband being um, killed. Uh, he, oh, he died. And this particular night, she was, she was I think, was going to take her own life. And eventually, after talking to her, I made her um, get a suit out of uh, his wardrobe and lie next to it. And the next day, there was the most amazing bouquet of flowers from her daughters and said, you saved my mother's life last night. That makes my job all worthwhile. She needed comfort and she you knew... Just at, at that moment in time. And that suit, she smelt her husband on the suit and she never thought of that and somebody else had to tell her. And then, of course, there's the famous story about uh, Michael, the boy that uh, was going to kill himself. And he rang up one night um, and said on air, I'm going to die. And he was 12 at the time. There was no way I could put that phone down. I could not put that phone down. I could never have lived with myself because if, I, if he had died, that would have been on me. And I didn't know what to do because I've never been trained as a counsellor. And I've no skills, but I've got life skills. Anyway, long story short, I said, if I come and get you, will you not commit suicide? And he said, you wouldn't come and get me. He said, I will walk out of the show now. I will put this on auto and I will walk. You wouldn't do that for me. Yes, I would. So I did. I walked out. Rang the police as I was going to meet him because he was, he was actually hiding in a street near Everton. He was going to hang himself. And I told the police, so the police were in place just to protect me because I didn't know I was being set up with a young boy. I didn't know what was going on. And the taxi drivers also in Liverpool who have always been uh, there for me over lots of things. They were in place. He came out and he went, I can't believe you've come to me. I said, I told you I'd come to you. Now, we're going to take you to hospital. Are you all right about that? Yeah, yeah, but I just... And so we took him to hospital. Pete, sometimes Liverpool hits the news in really difficult circumstances uh, the picture of a little boy being led away through a shopping centre was, of, of our generation, I think, probably one of the hardest times, wasn't it? Well, you as a newsreader must have, and a journalist must have also struggled. I don't know how people dealt with it. I don't know how I dealt with it. I had a breakdown after I did a five-hour phone-in for people just to talk, but we did that to find witnesses, which we did. But going back, we'd heard what had happened 
And then this night, I remember my producer saying, take this call now. And it was Helen Bulger, uh, Ralph's mother. And all I remember her saying, I was a little bit lost about she was breaking her heart. But I remember saying, I don't think I'm going to see that little angel again. That stayed with me forever. And from there, I became embroiled in the case completely, so much so that I was the voice of Liverpool, whether I liked it or not. And CNN camped up over here. Granada were here all the time, ITV. Everybody was here. And I was like a voice. And because we had this five-hour phone and we'd found witnesses who'd seen James being pulled along the street from a bus, and Denise, by the way, listens to this programme every night um, along with her new husband, Stuart. Um, and we are close friends. I went on the marches when the boys were going to be released from prison. I was there for her. I developed a relationship with her. I, I, I was involved all the way with it. It changed my life. It changed Liverpool. It was the most horrendous story I've ever experienced. And of course, because, like you, we knew what was going on at the railway track, which was never put out to the press for many, many years. And we knew about the torture, etc. And that was a terrible thing to live with. And then the trial, and it was horrendous. This is late night radio. And we, of course, break so many stories because so much happens at night. Um, and so there's a responsibility. Yeah, there's the pranks and cranks. Yeah, there's the sad people. There, yeah, there's the lonely people. Yeah, there's the showbiz guests. But we are giving something back to the community. What about your celebrity friends? Uh, Bob Monkhouse is one of them that springs to mind. What advice did he give you early on? Bob was like a dad to me and I didn't realise how much I loved him until he died. I mean, I couldn't go to the funeral because we were in Panto and I said to Jackie's wife, I can't go to the funeral. I was absolutely heartbroken. And she went, come on, he wouldn't have expected that. You know what the business is about, which I loved him for. But you went, I, on, you went on holidays with him. Oh, well, I was up at the first time I met her, I was up a ladder putting his name on uh, up at the Shakespeare in lights outside. And he went, I think you spelled that wrong. And I went, but, and I fell off the ladder. That was your job? That was my job. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I did, you everything. did everything. Yeah, I did Multitasking. Everything. Yeah, always have been, always have been. Clean the toilets if they were, uh, if they needed it. No, I had no problem with stuff like that. Never have done. Bob and I became friends, but it took me years. He was a very private man. And eventually, when he'd asked me to go, I'd been stayed at his house in Eggington a couple of times because I was in awe, like I was with Scylla. Just like we are now, I used to pinch myself saying, I can't believe I'm sitting next to Bob. When I got to Barbados all those years later... Is that the first time that you went to Barbados? Yeah. Uh, yes, to so stay with him. So what's that like? Oh. Well, what Bob used to do, his house was called the Sandcastle. And he did that for a reason. Because when a journalist would say, um, have you got a place abroad? Oh, just a little sandcastle on the beach. <laughs> Which was a great nice. way of doing it. And I always remember, he had Renoir's in the house. I mean, he was a collector, as we all know. But he had paintings worth millions. And uh, somebody, a journalist, actually was sitting there apparently one day and said, isn't this amazing? Uh, wouldn't it be great if they were really said, yes, I know. So he never gave things away. Anyway, when I got there, he said to me, the first two things he said to me was, just so you know, this is the real Bob. Took his hat off. He said, I'm bald, because, of course, he combed his hair in a special way, and opened his shirt and said, I'm fat. <laughs> he said, I've been on a diet for 36 years. I've given up now. End of story. You will pay for your accommodation here. I said, fine. We have a devised a way you will pay for your accommodation. So... Twice a day, I would go to the top of this sensational house on the beach and I'd be on the balcony. 
I would put his straw hat on and a big pair of dark glasses. And I would wave. And the tourist ship. There's Bob. Wave back to Bob. Isn't he wonderful? He never lets us down. Hi, Bob. Everyone shout, hi, Bob. They were playing Scrabble downstairs and I was being Bob Monkhouse <laughs> twice a day. That was my accommodation paid for. Oh, excellent. And was he as funny as, as we all thought oh, he was? Amazing. He had an amazing... Serious uh, man as well. Very quiet man. He used to creep round. Really? Yeah, it was really quiet. And he, he used to come up and, and, and if you picture my leg and you sit there and you go, love you, walk off. The first time he did it, it scared the living daylight out of me. I thought, ooh, what's this about? So he wasn't telling jokes all the time? No, no, he was a very, he was a real collector. He was um, a beautiful home. He made tapes of music all the time. It was writing all the time. And when he wasn't writing, he was playing Game Boys to keep his mind active. He was very, very serious man but also would love talking showbiz. And was he a big influence on you then? A huge influence. I mean, when I went on New Faces, he sent me my script. He wrote a script for me and gave me the gags to do and said, this is what you need to do. And how did that go? I won it and then got through uh, and then was knocked out by Lenny Henry. If you're going to get knocked out by somebody, you might as well get knocked out by the, the governor. Um, so, yes, what he did for me helped me enormously. You've done so much, haven't you? I wonder how you did, in the end, uh, come to be presenting your current show. There was a reason for that. I was on the road doing 70,000 miles a year, getting fed up with it, because it's very lonely on the road working, and you work some right carsies, and you work some nice places. And I wanted to be home. I was getting a bit older, and they offered me a radio show. And I was earning big money, but I thought, maybe I could take a drop and become a big fish in a little sea. Uh, rather than a little fish in a big sea. And I started and said yes, and I, I made the, the, the decision to stay at home and still do gigs at the weekend and then panto. Um, so I built up this, and I'll write for the Echo, so I built up this little niche. And how long ago was that? Oh, God bless us. Do you know, I'm te that's the only thing I've struggled with is dates. I honestly don't know, but I've been on radio 36 years, 50 years in the business and 36 years in radio. Do you ever have any regrets? Yes, I have regrets. I would have liked to have been, not now, but I would have liked to have been more famous. Um, I'd like to have had a national radio show or a television show years ago. I nearly did have one called Comedy Connection, which was written by Bob Monkhouse. It was me and seven other comics, and it was a very clever, very clever idea of putting a show on in a theatre and the gags were backstage and also in the theatre, and Don McLean was going to be the lead, and it was cancelled. We did the pilot, and it was cancelled just before Christmas. In fact, it was cancelled Christmas Eve, and the year after, we had a series booked for it. We had a, a touring show and the summer season, and the whole thing was pulled because Francis Essex, who's not with us anymore at ATV, sold the idea to America, to the Smothers Brothers. I was... Devastated, really, really bad time over that. So I'd like to have gone down that direction. And there's two things I want, which I never had and never will, which is really sad. I always wanted to be on This Is Your Life. And I live on my own, so behind my front door is a box full of stuff if they ever wanted it, Eamon Andrews, who, uh, Michael Aspel, whoever did it. And my dream, I've always wanted to go on Desert Island Discs. I think it's a fabulous programme. Isn't that ridiculous? Is fame really that important? It was, yeah, years ago. But now when you look back on no, it? No, now it's, now I'm glad where I am because if I was famous, famous, with the intrusions these days with Facebook, Twitter and everything else, I think I'd hate the world.
you know. So I like, I like. It's lovely to be recognised in the street. It's lovely. I always remember Monkhouse telling me, uh, "It's lovely to be recognised, and it's lovely to go away and be left alone." But it's lovely to come back and be recognised again. Tell me about pantos. Uh, we all know you do uh, pantos and you love them. How many pantos do you reckon you've been in? Thirty. Thirty. Thirty years. Thirty years of pantos. Um, A favourite. Silver Black 2008 in the Capital Culture. That was the famous one where she came on stage and she said, how shall I kill him? And somebody shouted, sing to him. That genuinely did happen. <laughs> and she roared with laughter. It was hysterical. She actually went off the stage. Oh, that's And a great people line. said, why did she walk off? She met her knickers. She laughed so much. <laughs> Um, so that was a great pantomime. But they mean you work all over Christmas. Why would you do that by choice? And my phone in as well. Yeah. Well, I work over Christmas because I hated Christmas after my mum died. After my mum died, I loathed Christmas. Thought it was the most lonely time. And a lot of people just go to bed, lock themselves in the room and wake up the next day and it's gone away. Um, but then so to I be just... part of that panto cast is a great thing, And to make children happy. You know, to see kids' faces because pe people don't realise there was a bad time when Panto went wasn't fashionable, but it's now way and truly fashionable. But what people didn't understand was that's children's first experience of theatre and that's our new audience. They're our new audience for the next 30, 40 years. And what's the atmosphere like backstage when you're involved in a Panto? If it's a happy Panto, it's great. Learning process is difficult, you know, when people have settled in with it and they know what they're doing, then the clicks start to form and it can be a happy panto and they party. And what they do here is um, when they party, uh, when I was at the Royal Court and the Empire, they would, because I did my show as well, so I'd do two shows a day and a four-hour phone-in, the kids would come here, have a couple of bottles of wine, go to the clubs, come back here, a couple of bottles of wine, go to the club. So this was their base. So that was my party, having them all in here. And it saved them a few, Bob, because they didn't have to pay the club prices. So it just broke it up for me. Um, but if you're with a bad cast, it's a very long, slow, laborious <laughs> process in Panto. Panto's a strange thing, though, isn't it? It's very British. It, it, it doesn't export, does it? It doesn't export, but it's on in Canada. It's done in Australia. Nigel Lithgow's wife, Bonnie, is doing it. And uh, Nigel's children started it in America and it was hysterical. So imagine they came on stage and went, it's behind you. 2,000 people turned around and looked. So they had to have an interpreter <laughs> to explain Panto. And guess who did it? And he's just suddenly died. Guess who did it in Miami? Bernie Winters. Mike and Bernie Winters. Mike Winters. Bernie died. Mike Winters did it, wrote it and produced it. In... So they've tried it, but yes, it is completely British. It's a strange sense of humour, though. I mean, what is it, do you think, that makes a panto work? Clever smut. Uh, routines that are famous, like Busy Bee, like the sausages on fire, like the uh, um, if I were not upon the stage, someone else I'd rather be. And you've got nine people dressed in silly costumes, like seeing a man who, by the way, when they, they do Dame, because I've done Dame and Ugly Sister, it's not a man in drag. It's a man with a man's voice. I hate these drag queens who think they're ugly sisters. It's not about that. It's funny. It's clever. And it's telling a story that... That is, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, I used to go on as buttons and I, I was the boy next door that they never talked about who never married. That was the character. And for children, those costumes, though, and the magic of it all. I'll never forget my first panto with Dickie Valentine at the Empire. And I thought one day I want to do that. 
and it, it stays with you forever. I mean, our shows at the Empire are million-pound productions, and the costumes are just... And the scripts, it's great. Fabulous. As I say, though, that means that you work over Christmas, you're doing your radio show as well. You have an extraordinary work ethic. Where's that come from? From my mum, from the corner shop, from but my friends. But why have you still got that now? You don't need to work like this. No, I don't need to work. I don't actually need to work. I can't not work. I always remember years ago when, you, when we were on the road as a comic, if you had a Saturday night off, you were crap. You didn't, you must have been a bad comic. And do you know comics wouldn't go out on a Saturday night? Because people say, well, you must be. It's ridiculous. It's a mentality that what am I going to do? If I don't work, what am I going to do? I'd love time off, um, but what, what am I going to do? It's, it's strange. You say you'd love time off, but you don't take time off. No, because then I feel guilty because I'm not working. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. My mum and dad, my dad had a lot of money, went bankrupt. My mum finished up scrubbing steps in the Ringabells pub in West Kirby to keep me alive. Uh, my life was building a nest egg, which I have got. That gives me a lot of comfort. Knowing said, don't spend it. I'm not mean. I'm incredibly generous with my friends, but I'm mean with myself, which is very strange. Because of what you saw your because mum go through. Because of what I went saw my mum go through. You know, I, I came from the mentality where you had a jar to save for Christmas, a jar for Easter, a jar for your holidays, and I've still got a jar. I've still got my bottle with me coins in it. That's all changed now. I actually want to take the the jar to the bank to change it because they've got machines in now, but I can't lift it, it's so heavy. <laughs> it is strange that it takes something tough in your life sometimes for people to get that work ethic. Do you know I surround myself with friends that have got that work ethic? I've got a lot of friends who are younger, a lot younger than me, that I've got a wonderful circle of friends which I've nurtured and I protect, and every one of them that's young has got the same work ethic as me. I've got a pal who's an actor now and doing auditions every five minutes but has got a fantastic job as well and plays it between them. I've got another pal who is now working but when he was at university he had two jobs because he didn't want to live off his mother. I love surrounding myself with people like that. We have people working in here. You've got people in Granada like that. You know They've got that ethic. We've got some fabulous people that help us on this show. And you know they're doing it for nothing, but they will be successful in life. Your career's brought you in contact with some big names. One of my favourites, Dame Edna Everidge. Dame Edna was coming. Barry Humphreys arrived with this huge scarf and this huge trilby. And I thought, what am I going to do? And he went, this is how you play it. You will take direction from me. I will become Dame Edna. And I will talk to you when I'm ready. And I will finish the interview when I'm ready. Now, I'd never experienced anything like this. So sitting there, he went into this comatized sort of strange way and came out of it as Edna and controlled the interview completely and then went and then disappeared. It was the weirdest interview. It was fabulous, but... I was in awe of this. Dame Edna, what an interview. Funny. Funny, but strange, because he was a very serious, deep man uh, and a very learned man and another collector of art. Most comics are serious, you know. Most comics, Frankie Howard wasn't funny without a script. John Cleese is not funny without a script. It's, it's weird. Dame Edna was not funny without being Dame Edna. 
strange. Paul O'Grady is funny. End of story. <laughs> He's a great man. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the callers that you deal with. Sarah, do you remember Sarah, who was 15 and wanted a baby? Some callers, and I'm sure this this can apply to you, it's very difficult to switch off. You must read and hear a story. And when you're putting a story together, there are bits you leave out because of the time you're on, etc. And the way you say it. There must be times you go home and you have a glass of wine, you sit at home and you really can't go to bed. You really can't go to bed. I couldn't go to bed after speaking to Sarah. Sarah changed my... Lots of people changed my life. She changed my life. She was an underage teenager who was having a baby. I said to her, how are you going to cope with the money? And she went, I'm saving my pocket money up. I couldn't believe she said that. I was flabbergasted. Tell me about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, great story about Jeremy Corbyn. You will love this. You'll you love this as a journalist. I knew something was going to happen with Jeremy. Uh, I'd spoken to him before about Stop the War campaigns and all that, so I'd got to meet him through that. I'm, I don't profess to be a journalist at all, but I do uh, know a little bit. I know a little of a lot. Uh, my dear friend Carmel, Carmel Nolan, who was my first producer, Carmel became his first PR and she was the one that created Jeremy Corbyn, believe me, and got out at the right time, which was amazing, but that's another story. Jeremy, I did the interview, and I knew I was sitting on this amazing powder keg. I knew it was going to happen. And then it exploded. Six weeks later, Carmel said, Jeremy is going on, uh, on the front cover of one of the national newspapers, um, and you've got him saying what they've got. You throw it again, throw it in. So I threw it in. It went round the country. And I remember, and I won't mention which company it was, but I remember the head of news in a certain company saying to her, how dare you give an interview to a local radio station knowing what I could do with that and the power? And he told her off. She said, have you finished? That was an interview I gave six weeks ago when you knocked it back. Now you can apologise if you want. So that was the power. I knew I was sitting on a powder keg with Jeremy Corbyn. So what's it like when you do an interview with someone at one point in their life and then suddenly, a few weeks later, everybody wants them? It's a nice feeling. You go home and you, you go, yes, and then move on to the next day. I think that's the thing about being a live broadcaster, isn't it? You're in the eye of the storm. Yeah. And that's why you need the knowledge of being able to do it. You know, you really do. I mean, it's interesting that you as a newsreader and as a journalist use scripts. I've never used scripts, but I could never do my act as a stand-up comic without my ridiculous clothes. Until I went to America and I was put in a position when I got up in a comedy store in Vegas. I had no number clothes. I said, I can't do it. And I put a jacket and tie on and I did it. You know what I'm saying? It's crossing over. It's just going over. I mean, you're an incredible journalist and you could do exactly what I do. It's crossing that line. I couldn't do, by the way, what you do. I could not work with a script the way you do it. A lot of people will listen to you on the radio and they'll hear about your career and they think, how did you manage to get such an exciting collection of things to do? If you were listening to this, maybe a young person doing an exam at the moment who wants an exciting life, what would you say to them? I created it. Nobody helped me. Not one person helped me. I did it all myself. The money I've got, and I've got quite a bit of money, I got. Nobody gave it me. 
I got, I worked for it. I was given a great piece of advice years ago. And when I was working, I used to do three things. I used to say, every day you get up, do three things to further your career. If it's three phone calls to an agent or three phone calls to a club or try to get into radio or put a tape together or put a first chapter of your book down or write an idea down. Every day I would make myself do something. It mightn't work, but at least I'd do it. You've got to get up and want it. No good ringing me up on the radio show and saying, I want to get into radio, what I do. You do nothing. If that's your attitude, do nothing. Do some research. Find out. You know, get off your backside and do something. Nobody nobody put you where you are. You put you where you are. Nobody put Jonathan, my producer, where he is. All my friends, none of them have been born with a silver spoon in their mouth. None of them. Graft. Simple as that. And knockbacks. Lots of knockbacks. You see, I think of that little boy that you were talking about earlier on, on the beach. And I wonder how did he get from there, with all the knocks along the way where you are now. I wanted to prove to my mother's family, my mother's family as in Hilda, the woman that brought me up, I'm not a particular lover of any of them. And they used to bring me down and one of my cousins who sadly has just died once said to my mother, why do you always go on about your son? He's not even yours, he's adopted. So I needed to prove it. I needed to prove to my dad who went bankrupt. I needed to prove that, I mean, I did the most dreadful thing once that I was ashamed of and it came back to haunt me because I was so ashamed. We had a beautiful house in West Kirby called Vine Cottage, a beautiful house with acres of land. And when we went bankrupt, we finished up in a terraced house and I used to get people dropping me off at Vine Cottage and climbing over the wall to go to my house round the corner. And I was so ashamed when I got older, when I realised the way my mother had grafted to give me that start in life, I was ashamed. And that's why I help other people and give something back, because I got helped. So when most children would just be looking out at Hilbury Island and having a good time, were you dreaming of doing something with your life yeah, back then? Yeah, always, always. And... Uh, Amazing you mentioned Hilbury Island. Um, I love Hilbury Island. So do I. And West Kirby. The one thing that I would hate when I die is never seeing Hilbury Island again. I think it's the most beautiful view on God's earth. I love walking around the lake. I used to go to Hilbury Island when I was a kid. There was 65 of us went on Hilbury Sunday and we used to have a radio or radios and they used to take sandwiches and I, because I was a chef, took a barbecue and we cooked and we would walk back to sing something simple and then the top 20. It was amazing. It was a very important part of my life, Hilbury Island. That's still a perfect day out for a child now. Unreal. The walk over there at the right time, because it's very dangerous. Mm. You've got to get the tides right. Unbelievable over there. And, of course, Prince Philip used to go. It was a bird sanctuary. Oh, it is a bird sanctuary. But he used to go when he was younger. People didn't know uh, and spend time there. We live in the most wonderful part of the world because we've got the peninsula, we've got the Mersey, we've got the Dee, we've got 200 seals on Hoyle Bank, we've got Liverpool, we've got Manchester just up the road. We're in an amazing part of the world. See, it's funny, you weren't born in Liverpool, were you? You weren't born no, but here, Liverpool, you were born in Wrexham, but you've yeah. really adopted the Yeah, because I, 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 I have the best of both worlds. I live on the Wirral and look over at the best waterfront in the world, and I work at night looking over at the Wirral. <laughs> so it's great. What about your plans for the future, Pete? Well, I've just signed a two-year contract here, and I said... It's amazing that you've given me a two-year contract. They said, we actually want you to die on air because it'd be great publicity. Oh. 
Oh, they mean it. Oh, no, they mean it. Make no mistake. I, I will work forever. Why not? You know, I'd love to cut down a bit, but I would work forever. I love working. I, I don't see the purpose of life without work. Isn't that ridiculous? Well, Pete Price, happy birthday. How do you feel about your birthday? 50 years in the business of show business. 70 years old. Ooh, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. But 21 in my head. Yeah, you don't feel 70, you don't look 70. No, I don't feel 70, that's for sure. But you keep fit. I look, try and look after myself as much as possible. Try not to go to the doctors too often. Um, I mean, there's 70 and 70, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love seeing my old friends. Well, I love it when you go to an old people's home, listen to me, an old people's home, and do something. They say, you could join here. I went, I wouldn't go there. What, why do I want to go line dancing? What, and of course, of course, I am old enough. I loved it when I got my bus pass. I thought that was hysterical, that. Uh, and I love it when now people stand. Do you want to sit down? No, I do not want to sit down. Keep your seat. There's no stopping you, is there? Hopefully not. Pete, a very happy birthday to you. It's been lovely talking to you. And if you enjoy that, we've got some great podcasts. Why not just subscribe? It's free.